Hey, Changemakers, welcome to another episode of the Sacred Changemakers podcast. My name is Jane Warrilow, and I have a great guest lined up for you today. This podcast is about change and transformation, but not just any old change. We believe in change for good, which lies at the intersection of three things, personal, professional, and social transformation. So come with us on a journey as we go behind the scenes with people who are making a real difference in our world. Each episode, we'll be diving deeply into topics at the intersection. Sometimes we'll be interviewing thought leaders and sometimes we'll be leading deep dive conversations, tackling the challenging issues of our times. Now, before I introduce today's guest, I want to ask a favor. It won't take a minute and it would make a huge difference to us. Would you please go to iTunes or whatever app you're listening to, subscribe and leave a rating and review. It helps us to share our message of inspirational change with as many people as we can, and it helps our guests get their messages out to more people. Thank you. Okay, I hope you're ready to be inspired because today our guest on the podcast is Alan Briskin, a pioneer in the field of organizational learning and leadership development. He's been working with executives, managers, and teams for over 35 years as a coach and consultant, specializing in systems change and collective wisdom. Alan's work is distinguished by his attention to the sacred in personal, group, and whole system transformation. Co-founder of the Collective Wisdom Initiative, he has written or co-authored five books, including the award-winning The Power of Collective Wisdom, Daily Miracles, and the Stirring of Soul in the Workplace. We've titled our conversation today as Revelation, Hidden Fields, a New Way of Thinking about Social Transformation. So welcome, Alan. Thank you, Jane. Good to be here with you. Oh, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Now, we may have just met, but your work really intrigues me. It really does. So before we dive in, I'd love to know a little about the man behind the bio and the journey that brought you to your life's work. Well, thank you. Um, what comes to mind is that there were some markers and there really was a journey. Uh, I was 15 in the 1960s. Uh, my parents were immigrants from Lithuania. Uh, they grew up in shtetls uh, under a, a Jewish Orthodox tradition, and they brought that to you know Manhattan, where I was born, and we, I grew up not far away in uh, uh, later on in Bayside, Queens. And uh, by 15, I was uh, truly alienated. I was caught between two worlds. I could not connect to either, neither the Orthodox Jewish traditions and the institutionalized ways they had been, you know, presented to me, or the middle class sort of American dream of, you know, progression through, uh, you know, to some, to some work that would get you an income and you could have your, you know, perfect life. And so I really was in this felt sense of not being, being betwixt and between, not not having something I could connect to. And I remember reading a book called Lives of Children. Uh, I still remember the author's name, George Denson. And he wrote about uh, 
his development of a teaching program in the South Bronx for kids who had been kicked out of school. And he did that by developing a curriculum based on their own lives. And this was for me, the first real revelation. It's, I saw a question, which is what is learning look like for people who have been marginalized? and the beginnings of an answer that you begin with where they are. You begin with where, where, where people live inside of themselves and work outward. And this was diametrically opposed to the educational system, which had a curriculum that was attempting to be internalized into each person, often unsuccessfully. Uh, and, and so that was the first breadcrumb for me. And, uh, mm-hmm. Shortly after, about a year later, I was still just turning 17. I was still 16 when I left for a a community in Israel. It was based on the kibbutz. It still exists today and having gone through many transformations as an echo village. But at the time, it was an international community of people attempting to sort of uh, create a new kind of society. And uh, although there was many uh, elements of that that were really inspiring. There's also many a, a dark shadow to it all, uh, and it had to do with how people in the group treated each other. And I really took from that that there's a difference between the values people espouse and even the good intentions they may have, and what happens at the group level. Mm-hmm. And this was really, in some ways, the first uh, breadcrumb about fields that one could not just listen to what people said. Uh, but one had to experience somatically and psychically what was happening in the environment. Mm. Uh, wow. Okay. So I love your use of the word revelation because I have to be honest and say that's not a word that, I, that many people around me anyway use other than in a religious context. So what do you mean when you say revelation in that way? Well, when the word came to me in regard to fields, I wasn't thinking of it in the religious sense, which, you know, we know is a kind of prophetic world where, you know, people are judged and and uh, there's an apocalyptic element to the book of Revelations. Right. I was staying much closer to what the word actually felt to me as the revealing of something, mm-hmm. uh, often something that was obscured or um, in front of us, but we couldn't see it. Mm-hmm. And uh, the idea of revelation when it happens internally is the opening of something. It's like you become aware of something that's generative. Mm-hmm. And so fields was, uh, the, the revelation was that we live in fields and we don't uh, know how to speak of it. Uh, recently, I came across the quote, uh, I don't know um, who discovered water, but I know it wasn't fish. <laughs> I love that. Uh, it yeah. it, it so- turns out Marshall McLuhan <laughs> used a version of that quote to talk about what, ha- what was happening in media. But I thought that's the revelation. It's, you know, what is it that the fish can discover once they realize they're in an environment 
And so that was the power of revelation of all different kinds of fields we inhabit that are obscure or invisible to us until we turn our attention that we're swimming in it. It's so interesting because, you know, our title with the hidden fields that we have. And what's interesting to me is I've got a growing realization in my life that the things that are the most important to me are actually the things that are invisible, <laughs> you know? And so as you talk about a field, I'd love you to kind of, you know, walk us through what that means in a way, because I'm sure there's some people here that are listening that are not aware of what we mean when we talk about field. Is it energy field that you're talking about? Mm -hmm. I, th I think that's the perfect opening question because that's the inquiry. You know, what are the different kind of fields we inhabit? Uh, how are we affected by them? How do we affect fields? Yeah. Uh, and there are, um, you know, one maybe definitional is in, in physics, a field is a region that's uh, impacted by energy. So there's gravitation, there's electromagnetic, mm -hmm. there's the two nuclear fields. Uh, Einstein said the field is the sole governing agency of the particle. The field is the sole governing agency of the particle. And it's, uh, again, it's within that context of physics. Uh, so an apple falls from the tree because it's in a gravitational field. Right. Right. And as soon as you said that, I just kind of made a leap in a way to, well, then does that mean that I as an individual am like a particle? In a that's right. <laughs> that, 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 that's 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 exactly right. I, I think the the use of that metaphor is in some ways to become sobered up that we are a function of fields. Now, unlike an apple that has no choice of falling to the ground, mm. uh, we have consciousness. Right. We, are, we, are, we are aware of what passes through our mind and we have some version of free choice. But, to, but to, to grasp the power of that without being aware of the field we're in is to be acting blindly. So what I'm hearing you speak to is that, you know, we, as individual humans, we are like the particle in the field, but how do we get a sense of, because it sounds like there are different types of fields. Yeah. So how do we get a sense of how we're impacting a field and how the field is impacting us? Well, I want to start slow because the revelation yeah. is becoming aware of something that is obvious of but not so obvious you know so yes. um so the power of revelation is awe is wonder it's like what could all of this be what kind of fields are there how am i interacting with it uh which which ones am i more aware of and which ones am i not right uh, so you and i have talked uh previously about energetic fields the, yeah. the field of the body yeah. And there's enormous information that we have now 
about the brain and the mind body and the fields internally and that are created by the electromagnetic uh, uh, power of our heartbeat, the yeah. coherence of our heart versus its variability. Mm -hmm. um, I've just been, because I'm writing again uh, with a, my co-author, Mary Jolinas, uh, we've been looking at the different neural circuitry within the brain and the fields that are created. So one of the networks of the brain is the salience network, which is always attuned to threat. Uh, and if that becomes uh, hyperactive, if it becomes hair trigger, everything becomes a threat. We're living right now in the midst of a pandemic. And uh, I have no doubt people experience moments or maybe even extended periods of anxiety because we're in a field <clears throat> where there is a threat that's invisible and that we could become susceptible to. So that salience network is hair trigger. And, it and once it gets hair trigger, it could recognize almost anything as a threat. And so that's a certain kind of very personal field that is created by the very activity of our neural pathways. And as you're saying that and speaking to that, I feel it. I, I feel that when I think about, you know, the pandemic, when I think about, well, not just the pandemic actually, but because I feel like the pandemic came when we were already facing a number of complex challenges right. as That's humanity. Right. So it's, it's not just the pandemic for me. It's kind of, that's almost like the, I suppose, you know, compounding everything. A further but, punctuation. Yes, totally. Um, but also I notice, and we were talking before we started recording about how, it's almost like I feel most, there are times when I feel very sensitive to the trauma that's mm -hmm. happening in the world right now. And there's no doubt that that is having an impact on my own human energy field as that's I right. see that. And you point to a few other things. Emotion is a field. Yeah. If we um, are anxious and fearful, that creates a whole a set of other conditions, chemical releases in our bodies, the variability of our heartbeat, the way we see others. Uh, what's, what is significant in the looking, the, the inquiry into fields is that they're not uh, continuous and stable. So at the very moment we're aware of maybe being hypersensitive to suffering, we also may find ourselves more compassionate. We may be releasing other, uh, another kind of field in which we realize how much we need each other, how people are having conversations with each other they never had before because there's a search for meaning, a search for connection, a wanting to tell someone that you love them. It's really interesting because so I've got this metaphor in my head as you're speaking, which is really strange, and I'm not sure where it's come from. And I, what I want to ask you is, I'm hearing you speak about fields in a way that's not linear, right? Yes. It doesn't sound like, oh, I'm just in one field here and then I pop into another field, almost like buildings on a high street as I like walk down. It's almost like I'm hearing you say, and please tell me if I've got the, this incorrect, is that we can be in 
more than one field at once. And I'm wondering if they're kind of nested in a way. Yes. A bit like cultures are. <laughs> well, I think there's absolutely uh, uh, nested fields. But the first uh, um, comment you made was it's non-linearity. Yeah. Because even in a nested field, you could say, okay, this is in this, this is in this, this is in... Now I have a hierarchy and it's all nested together. That, that's still a kind of linear structure. And what mm. you... The field, let's say that you and I are creating is a dialogic field. Right. And so you, you don't know why, but some thought arises. Yes. And it connects to what I'm also thinking and feeling, and our job is to pay attention to this. Uh, David Bohm, the physicist, his revelation about dialogue, and he had a particular way of understanding it. He didn't mean just conversation or even profound conversation. He really understood the power of slowing thought down so that two people or more could see meaning, and he had an image of two people on different sides of a bank and their attention is to the water flowing uh, in front of them and that they're thinking together, uh, that they were watching how their thoughts joined together as a f flowing, uh, as flowing between them. And that's a field. That's a dialogic right. field. Right. I love that. Because the metaphor I didn't get to share with you that I was feeling was, I feel like I'm in a soup, mm -hmm. <laughs> like a noodle in a soup, <laughs> where, you know, there's, there's other people in the field with me, and then there are some fields that are just mine alone. Yeah. Kind of interesting. So why fields? Why is this important to us? Well, I think it had much to do with, you know, my, the journey that I spoke of, of how does one become conscious of oneself and oneself in the world? Uh, I became an organizational consultant and coach. How does one become aware of the field one's in, which is not just the instrumental aspect of, you know, what is it we're producing? What are the efficiencies that need it? What is the system that needs to be, uh, the values that need to be identified? There was all of this stuff happening in organizations. Mm -hmm. But I was interested in the individual leader I was working with becoming aware of the field they were in. And you do that a, a, a great deal through a, a being attention to feelings and emotions. Uh, and in a way you intentionally don't get so caught up in fixing something, but look further to the conditions that gave rise to the problem that's being brought forward. So field awareness became a kind of uh, background to all of my consulting work. What is your role in the system? How do you understand the system you're in? And what is being asked of you uh, as far as how you wish to interact in the system? Mm. Mm. Which takes me now, because that's so interesting. It takes me to a place where I'm now wondering about the texture of fields. I, I yes. don't know another word to use for it. And, and, and an inquiry is, that's bubbling up in me is, are some fields 
destructive or some fields more generative than others can we even create a field <laughs> intentionally? Uh, it's lovely what's coming up through you i mean i these are i mean just for the audience to hear you've just named the very things that i have been spending the last six months thinking about right. which is uh in this case there's few things that i answer in yes no ways but in this case yes fields can be absolutely destructive right uh yes fields can be absolutely generative and yes, we could absolutely impact fields. Uh, and, and let's just look at that because now we're moving back to that idea of the governing agency of the particle is the field. A field that is destructive, uh, that has an authoritarian element to it. Uh, one of my first mentors was the co-author of a book called The Authoritarian Personality. Uh, Nevitt Sanford was his name, and later the, the, that work developed into language of the authoritarian disposition, which is a binary system. You're either with us or against us. Uh, truth is not so much about inquiry, about what, what we can learn, but about facts or ways of thinking about facts that people are obligated to have. So an authoritarian system which we know politically as di dictators, we know that you know, the consequences of an authoritarian system is if people are heard saying something that doesn't agree with the people in power, they can be removed. Uh, uh, but it's a field. The, the, the feelings of being part of an authoritarian field is always watching your back, never knowing if something you say could come back to harm you. It's a destructive field because every part of our uh, physiology that warns us to threat is now on high alert and either we submit to the, what is expected to, of us or we're in danger. So if we wanna talk about destructive fields, uh, we know a lot about them. Yeah. On the other hand, I think the very reality of destructive fields gives birth to those who want to create generative fields. Uh, I think there's a direct relationship to, is it possible to create a different way to be together? And there's a good news here because, you know, we come from a history of people bonding together to survive. Now that was done in maybe small groups of 12 and then 20 and then maybe 300 uh, but we are wired to cooperate what has not occurred is how that um, expanse of cooperation can be seen globally and you know your own journey that you and i have spoke of uh, you know is part of that path of people who are being called now to want to create generative environments and generative environments have certain markers to them. Um, you know, one is the freedom to be yourself at the same time you can be connected with others, that it's not a binary choice. You either have to be your own, uh, you know, separate from others, or you have to be subsumed in the group, uh, that the generative field is generative because 
the uniqueness of each individual is able to contribute and it's to the benefit of the whole. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so interesting hearing you speak about this as fields rather than like, I suppose if I, if I slip into leadership language for a moment, we'd think about cultures <laughs> or context so what's the difference with a field? And is there a difference between a field and a culture or a context? I, I think there is an important difference. Um, while uh, culture and context are very congruent with fields, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the differences in organizational anthropology began to influence organizational thinking in the early 1900s. There's very little thinking of, of what we now call culture. It was really being mediated by efficiencies, cost efficiencies, mechanical efficiencies, uh, time efficiencies. Uh, and here the, the, the fish were moving around without any discussion of the water they were in. They were just moved by what would create more economic opportunity. Um, uh, the, the inequalities of wealth were really in the late 1800s, early 1900s were really reaching the first cycle of distortion. Cultures, colonization was disturbing indigenous cultures uh, toward the latter part of the mid to late 1800s. Yeah. Uh, and then organizational people discover culture after <laughs> you know, a hundred years of destroying uh, cultures that had existed. And it still becomes uh, not necessarily by the people who originally bring the language in, but over time it becomes instrumental. Here's the culture we don't want. Here's the new culture. Here's the values of the culture. And in some ways it is uh, opposite the very nature of culture to shape what happens within it which is closer to the language of a field. In biology, field is a region or structure that guides the development of the cell. Oh, wow, I really like that. I really like that. And then straight away, I mean, I flip-flopped to mm -hmm. some anxiety and some fear that kind of rose up in me. And I'll tell you why. Because as you said that, I'm thinking, okay, well, here I am doing my work in the world, in the US, <laughs> in America, and I have an intention to create a generative field for sacred change makers. And I, I certainly rely on the community and the energy that we collectively create together to help me find my ground, to keep stepping out and being bold about what I do because my perception is, particularly right now with the political uh, disruptions and the race for presidency that's going on right now, that I feel that the larger field is way more disruptive and maybe even a little bit detrimental and opposite to what it is I'm trying to do. Now, I know that's my belief. I get it's my perception. But from what you just said in that definition, Alan, that means I'm going to be impacted 
by the wider field and potentially not in a good way. And I have a sense of that, I have to say. That feels and, real. And this is the power of feelings. You, 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 uh, if I'm understanding correctly, a feeling came up a bit of an e unease that your yeah. belief is that you were, you know, one of the good guys and would help <laughs> do these things. And the feeling came up that maybe it wasn't that simple, that you were being impacted by that larger field in ways that you yourself were not fully conscious of. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I'll tell you where this comes up because there are, and it's a little bit of that dark night of the soul, that micro dark night of the soul that we talked about before we press record, which is that there are times when I notice my emotions flip-flopping. There are times when I feel very grounded and completely on purpose and generative and I can contribute and I feel, I'm going to use the word whole. And there are other times when if I listen to the news or another media channel or open or allow something in, let's put it that way, that is more destructive, I can notice myself feeling more insecure. Like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? That kind of thing can come up and I question it. So my question that's coming up right now is, is it possible to create a generative field maybe as a microcosm of a world I'd like to live in <laughs> when it's surrounded by other, let's just put it that way, other. I think sometimes disturbances are critical and part of revelation. Oh, I like that. Uh, so what we, what we need is uh, friendships to help um, um, mitigate the fears associated with revelation mm -hmm. that we realize that there are things impacting us that we had kept our a blind eye to in neuropsychology it's called cognitive tunnels we all develop these cognitive tunnels and operate within them and the consequences we don't see things that are outside of our cognitive tun tunnel so it may be reassuring to feel i'm with the good guys but you know, what am I not seeing? And, and it's critical, and this is where uh, friendships and networks are important, that I don't flip into despair. Right. That I don't, because I'm not conscious of something and it leaks in and, and sobers me up in a way. Yeah. Uh, that I don't wanna just run and get drunk again. Right. So to live with that question of how are my actions uh, impacting others and how are fields larger than myself impacting my work? Yes. That is a great question and something that I want to hold space for in my life. Definitely. So how do fields or how are they, particularly the hidden fields, how are yeah. they a new way of thinking yeah. about social transformation? Well, I want to use the example, um, you know, you said that the pandemic earlier is not the only thing that right. is in the larger field. And, um, yeah. and, 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 and so I want to talk about racism and patriarchy as fields. Mm. And what it means to live in these fields, depending on 
the color of our skin, the, our backgrounds, and so on. Uh, so one of the things that was brought to light is the way whites who don't feel prejudiced toward blacks become part of a racist system because they deny their complicity in a field that has racism in it. Yeah. And this has been, you know, brought forward now that we're becoming aware of the, of the, of the insidious nature of racism mm. uh, to divide people based on what their own internal answer is to the question of if they're prejudiced or not. Well, I'm not a prejudiced person, you know, so, so, uh, you know, this isn't a racist society. Uh, and it is again, the leaking, the disturbance of realizing uh, that your that the governing agency is the field, not your own self-absorbed beliefs about yourself. And so we look out and we begin to say, what is the complicity that I have uh, uh, regardless of the color of my skin? I'm in a, in a field that has a long history. And again, here's like, well, how is field different than systemic? Well, mm -hmm. a field has systemic properties to it. Uh, you don't just change a system, you have to change the field that that system evolved from. Wow, yes. And that reminds me, you saying that, it makes a lot of sense. I, I um, On the podcast, I had a Dr. Terry Maltbier from Columbia University recently on a panel. And it was a very interesting conversation because he said in there that through his life, he'd been like he, he was promoted not long after university in a, in a role that he wanted to be in. And he was promoted fairly quickly into that role. And he said, and it was great because his mentor, his champion in the organization wasn't showing any prejudice and invited him to the mm -hmm. table, if you like. Mm -hmm. He said, but then he had to turn around because he was then had a team of white people underneath him and they were very resentful. They had a lot of resentment that he'd got the role and they yeah. hadn't. And he said, what really struck him was he could be invited to the table or invited into the house, but the table and the house weren't built yeah. for him. That's right. <laughs> and that was such a revelation. Yes. You know, a related example is um, Trevor Noah is a comic who was born, whose, whose birth was illegal because he was the product of a white and black partnership. And his, he's an example, and it's often I have found in my life, it's often certain kinds of comics who, who are talking about the field. Mm. And he was commenting on how there had been at um, at a political convention, a African American man talking about his exceptional evolution from a grandfather who picked cotton to his being a senator in the United States, and Trevor Noah said, "This is truly exceptional. This is an exceptional story." But it also highlights his being an exception, right? Because if there was 30 African-American 
men and women in the Senate, he wouldn't be up there speaking about his inspirational story. It was an incredible, I thought, example of bringing attention to the field as opposed to the individual. Right. Right. Wow. So if we place our attention on the fields, then how, how can we use what, or how are you learning to bridge this into social transformation? I think that uh, is a question that has been central to my journey, and I hope it to be central to more people's journey. <laughs> um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go backward before I flash forward that in the 1980s, I wrote a doctoral dissertation, a, a theoretical dissertation called Institutionalization of the Soul, mm. and it was a historical view of the workplace. Mm. And I remember uh, a fellow graduate student reading it and saying, you know, one, you know, this will never be published, you know, because no one wants to hear this. And two, if it was published, no business would hire you as a consultant. Right. And I remember, and this is maybe a product of youth, I remember not being daunted by that. Uh, uh, at the time, I remember when I started looking for publishers, uh, convinced that the only books being published were uh, exercise books and uh, cookbooks. Uh, and, you know, and where would my book fit into all of this? Uh, but my th response to him was, I didn't want to work for an institution that it wouldn't have me. I mean, that in some ways I understood that this was ideas that were disruptive. Mm. What I didn't know is that the that I was not alone in in asking these questions. It took 15 years before my book came out as the stirring of soul in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And even then it was viewed as very early on in this movement, mm. but a movement it was. And so the piece here is I was not alone, even though at times I had to live with feeling alone with these ideas. Yeah. And, the, and one of the things that writing the book taught me is I become visible to others when I speak how my own contribution to the world. Mm. And, and, and so this sort of spins us into this language of self-actualizing and how does self-actualizing impact the world we're in? Because if we're all just in our own little insular bubbles, what does it matter what we do? And I would change, I would change the formulation. I recently had the pleasure of talking with Abraham Maslow's biographer, um, Maslow, who coined the term self-actualization. Yeah. And he told me that he had interviewed the biographer had interviewed Viktor Frankl, who was uh, the existential psychologist who developed logotherapy and who um, uh, spoke about the, the importance of people finding meaning in their life. And he survived the concentration camps mm. of Nazi Germany. And he said in 
he learned from Frankel that Maslow and Frankel had these conversations about the nature of self-actualizing. And Frankel thought that it was not only the ability of someone to use their gifts in the world, but their ability and willingness to speak to what the social world is asking of them. Wow. Yes, and I don't know why, and I'm, but I'm going to say it out loud, this work that you're tapping into here, Alan, it feels sacred. Mm -hmm. It feels like something, I don't know how to describe it, but it feels sacred to me. It feels like soul work mm -hmm. in the world. And that, what you just described there, between Frankel and Maslow, that's a revelation, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> really. Yeah. So I want to ask you about I'm going to pause because yeah. in the act of, of the revelation, you <laughs> paused and took a breath. Yeah. That may be one of the signature elements of becoming connected to an internal field and, and the fields around us, that we feel this exhalation like, oh. Oh, yeah. You didn't make, I didn't make it all easy for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you connected my description to your own work in the world yeah uh and i wanted to ask you because i very much resonated with it what of this makes it sacred what is it that that brought that forward from you and i feel really emotional right now i'm just going to say that so i don't know if tears are going to come but i can feel something but um what makes it sacred for me is it's beyond the self. It's, it's beyond Jane. It's, a, it's tapping into a field and a flow of energy for me that is something to be um, revered, I suppose. But it's also, it's a, it's, a, it's a knowing that I'm tapping into something that exists and is flowing with or without me. That's right. But I'm opening into it and it has a it has a texture and a movement and a grounding and a sensory thing with it that feels like um essence, soul, truth. These are the words that are just coming up inside that and I don't feel I adequately have the language to express. It's something to do with my root chakra energy as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. I feel I belong here. Mm -hmm. It's almost like life can take me away from it mm -hmm. when I tap into the expectations of becoming like Jane in her own evolutionary process of becoming in this lifetime. It's like a relief uh -huh. that that I, it's like a remembering. 
I can't describe it any, and it's like a wholeness. It's really quite beautiful, <laughs> what you've yeah. tried. And, and yeah. you know, my response is that you're pointing to what I hope the work, my work, and the work of others on fields, I'm describing as a Caper Copernican revolution of the self, that rather than the self having to be the center, just as we thought the earth was the center, yes. uh, the earth doesn't stop existing because it revolves around the sun. <laughs> <laughs> and the self doesn't stop existing because it's not the center of all things. Yeah. A matter of fact, and you, you pointed to this, the exhalation is that it's a relief, yeah. a release and a relief that we are part of something What's moving us is moving in others. Yeah. And it's not all dependent on me, but I have a part to play in it. Yes. Yes. And it's co-creative. And it, it opens me. It opens my energy field in a way that feels safe. Yes. Regardless of what I perceive is happening, like over there <laughs> and around. That's Right. Well, that's so, I mean, you, you talked about it being part of the root chakra, which has to do so much with safety. Yeah. And this opens us in a way that we're actually now not just closing and contracting because the world's so dangerous, but we're opening because we know there are allies out there to discover yeah. and join with. Yeah. Yeah. With my colleagues in Germany and the United States, uh, we began a gathering called Leading as Sacred Practice. And you didn't, I don't think you knew that, but that no. is, is, but you intuited exactly, you know, what is being called of us now um, to, to look at our work as sacred, as sacred in the sense, in the language you began to be using. Um, that we're part of something larger that is needing attention. Yes. And it's also helping me understand one of my own practices over the last, it's only been about over the last 10 months or so, has been around this word sacred. Mm -hmm. Because I can do things in my life, I can be things in my life, but when I put the word sacred in front of to describe something, everything shifts, Alan. Like if I think I'm cooking, but instead of just cooking dinner, I cook a sacred dinner. Mm -hmm. Or if I'm gonna, I don't know, record a podcast with someone and I hold sacred space for that, it shifts. And now what I'm understanding is, or I'm getting, certainly getting curious about it, I don't know I'm fully understanding it yet, is this idea that I'm tapping into a field, a stream of consciousness, mm -hmm. and I'm allowing that in yes. to move me so I'm being more receptive than what I would traditionally think leadership is. And I'm, I'm stepping into that flow that's already there, which is different. I don't know what other words to put for it. And it's also different to what I've learned about leadership and life and who I think I should be mm -hmm. as a leader. 
it's way more receptive and it feels oh gosh this is going to sound like a cliche but it feels mythic and it mm -hmm. feels like home it's like my soul mm -hmm. is at home in that flow and whenever i try and i think about whenever i try to grasp it it's almost like like newtonian physics i'm collapsing it into particle mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so it's a known entity and now i've lost the openness That's right. of the wave that's right. Of the flow. Because I can't quite grasp, you can't grasp flow because it's, it's a moving feast. It, it's, it, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I love what you, because one could say, oh, I mistook myself for a particle when really I'm a wave. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And it feels to me in this moment right now that openness my ability to open and allow is what invites the revelation mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, it, yeah. I love what, where we went with this because I think this really is, we started by uh, my saying that I thought at times we have to be disturbed, we have to sober up, we have to realize. Uh, and, the, and we reached in some ways the other shore, which is the liberating nature of this, that we have to open, not contract in yeah. fear. Yeah. Um, that we're not alone and that we're part of a flow. And how do we find ourselves, make ourselves visible to others and we do that by, uh, by, by being attuned to our own body. So much of what this conversation feels alive is that you were constantly attentive to the feelings that were arising. Mm. Yeah. And that's what's really interesting to me now is to think about my own personal calling to the work in the world that I'm currently doing. And understanding in a, in a nuanced way that it's almost like the systems of our world are set up for certainty, for particle. Yeah, that's and right. And yet here we are in a way disrupting everything people have been taught at school, for example, into a different relationship with the world. That's exactly right. You know, the, the famous line from John Lewis is uh, good trouble, making yeah. good trouble. My mentor, Angelus Arian, talked about uh, making mischief. Right. That becomes, I think, the role for these times of how yeah. we will make mischief, how we will get into good trouble, uh, that, that the world needs to be disturbed because it has fallen into the illusion we're all particles that can be moved around at the will of some of someone's will whether our own or or someone else's yeah yeah i also notice a real feeling or a sense of truth in what's emerging between us right now and i don't mean that as my truth or your truth or maybe i do i'm not sure but it feels like it has deeper roots than that Again, if we take seriously the feeling, we can ask, 
you know, what is that feeling of having touched something beyond just our own beliefs, opinions, prejudices, you know, have we glimpsed something that feels right, uh, that, that registers and resonates and we follow that path? You also said something, and I and I want to. You know, some of what evolved in our conversation felt mythic, and I think this is another marker of the sacred conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that whenever two people, or and more, touch something. And again, to be careful that we don't mean truth as something to defend, but yes. something that feels right, that feels aligned, mm-hmm. uh, that we are entering into the mythic, that, that the, the, the mythic nature is of a repetitive pattern that we are opening to, mm-hmm. a repetitive human cycle. The hero's journey is one of those, but it's not the only mythic uh, cycle. Uh, and when, to, when we meet in a way that is authentic, we are inviting the mythic into our lives, yes. which has an, an, a sense of great expansion. You know, we went from small little things <laughs> uh, to all of a sudden you know, being filled with uh, a human journey of tens of thousands of years. And this is one of the uh, real delights of pursuing this path. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And gosh, there's so much that is bubbling around for me right now that it's almost like I can't quite grasp some elements of it and that's okay. Like I, it's like I need time to process this and yet it feels so right. And it's, there's a remembering here for me, which is of course so important because it's, it's the origin in a way of, it's the spark of why I started sacred change makers. And why I have been very public about my path in this way, despite so many colleagues saying, well, you can call it change makers, but don't call it sacred because mm-hmm. nobody will like it if you call it sacred. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but of course, that's exactly what it is. And I feel this is aligned somehow with, and it builds the bridge for me, Alan. So huge thank you to you for helping me understand in a more nuanced way the bridge between what I experience as an individual, let's say that, and the bridge to the we, mm-hmm. to the, mm-hmm. the social change, the mm-hmm. social transformation. As Charles Eisenstein says, you know, the world we long for, the beautiful world yes. we long to live within. Well, I'm noticing the time. 
So I'd just like to ask you one final question. You know, if there's anything that you would have liked to have shared with our listeners today that we haven't got to, some, some wisdom that's just there waiting to be expressed, what might it be? Well, I'll be cautious about uh, wisdom. It's something we seek. It's not <laughs> something we pass out to each right. other. Uh, uh, I was sent a uh, poem by a colleague uh, who had, I had been discussing kind of the dark night of the soul with. And, and this is from Jack Gilbert. Um, and I'm going to read just a portion of what was in it. Um, he says, we must risk delight. We can do without pleasure, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. Hmm. This is mythic language. Yes. And it's speaking to, I think, our conversation in that uh, for us to only pay attention to injustice is to fall into the field which will have us not act. Right. And so to combat injustice we need each other we need not to just distract ourselves but we need the light uh, which could be also said the light <laughs> but uh, but the experience of delight is the light that will shine the pathway forward that we live and design from degrees of uncertainty but that's not the problem uh, the the challenge is to keep that light that we can travel on together. Mm. That was beautifully said. Thank you. I have so enjoyed the field <laughs> that we have co-created yeah. together yes. here. <laughs> I really have. Thank you so much, Alan. I feel oh. quite humbled to have been part of this conversation, this dialogue. Thank you it was so a great much. delight. Yeah. Okay, guys, that is all we have time for today. Thank you so much for listening in. Before we go, I want to remind you that all the resources and the links for our guests are in the show notes at sacredchangemakers.com. And our growing community of changemakers are actually our sponsors who help us to keep doing our work in the world. We're a network of people committed to making the world a better place. We support each other to grow personally and professionally. And together, we're making a direct impact aligned with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, all visible on our website. So if you're interested, I invite you to take a look and get free access to our popular program, Awaken the Changemaker Within. It's time to build a bridge from what you want in life to include what the world needs from you. Together, we can make a meaningful difference. Again, you can find us at sacredchangemakers.com. And if our episode resonated with you today, I hope you'll consider joining us. So for now, I just wanna say thank you. Thank you for listening, for your intention and efforts to make our world a better place. Until next time, lots of love.